Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. What we're going to talk about in this episode is one of my favorite ones. I love talking about the fact that companies describe themselves as being customer-centric, and I'm using, you know, hair tag here. Um, but like most of them don't actually really know what it means and most of them don't really practice it. So my guest today will help you to build the basic of a strategy that is based on customers by my mapping out customer journey, your customer journey. Um, my guest is a SaaS marketing and customer experience strategist, a startup mentor, the mother of two fierce daughters, uh, and the former VP of marketing for a software that you might know uh, called Unbounce, uh, which is a landing page software builder, and she helped them to turn from $1 million in annual recurring revenue to more than 15, which is quite a nice increase. And she left uh, Unbounce in Zen to, uh, to start her own gig uh, called A Better CX, A Better Customer Experience. Uh, she also runs Forget the Funnel. Uh, with a previous guest of Everyone Hates Marketers, Claire Sullentrop, who talked about jobs to be done. Uh, so they are two of my favorite marketers right now. Uh, the Forget the Funnel is actually an online workshop series that helps early stage SaaS marketers to become respected leaders. Uh, and finally, she's been developing strategies and launching campaigns for companies of all shapes and sizes for the last 15 years. Um, and she's like me, very, very, very passionate about what she does. So Georgiana Lodi, welcome. Thank you very much. That was quite the intro. I know, right? And it's all improvised. <laughs> that was great. It wasn't. Right. Um, so Gia, what does it actually mean to be customer-centric? I, it's funny. I, I was recently speaking with um, a friend of mine who works for a big telecommunications company. And she was like, uh, the senior team is so excited. And when I say big, I mean huge, actually. I, I'm so excited. The senior team's all excited. We're going to be data-driven. Yay, data-driven. And I was like, wait a minute. Is that really super exciting? I, I like. I understand it sounds good, but isn't it more important to be like customer driven? And she was like, "I don't understand what you mean." By the way, she doesn't work in in the marketing department, so I don't. I didn't expect her uh, to know this or you know care about necessarily this because she works in HR. But I, I was like, "You really? You should. If you have possible, if you have a possible way of influencing them, please talk to them about being customer driven and not data driven." Uh, it's just you know. It's a bit prolific these days, but I, there's a good trend uh, going towards being customer driven, which I love seeing, in, at least in the marketing space. People outside of it maybe are a little bit less attached to it, but and they're still on the data driven is important train. But um, I'm not saying it's not important, but uh, yeah, I, 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 being customer centric, what does it mean? Uh, it means uh, giving a shit about creating good customer experiences. It means giving a shit to ask uh, questions and talk to your customers. And it means giving a shit to actually share that information and sort of disseminate those customer insights to the rest of the organization. So it's not just somebody off in a corner with all this insight and not, um, you know, sharing, sharing the, the knowledge with the rest of the company so that everybody can be customer centric. So uh, from, from my, my small experience, it seems like a lot of people would agree with you. In fact, most people would say, yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. Why shouldn't we focus on customers? They are the one paying our salaries at the end of the day. But it seems like a lot of people struggle to actually implement that in their day-to-day -day 
life. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something we're going to talk about in this episode, practical methods to actually do so. But why do you think it's so damn difficult for people to actually be truly customer-centric, to actually, to actually give a shit about customers? <laughs> it's a great question. And I think that the answer is largely, especially I will say in tech and the startup space, is because everybody's so results-driven. And it's results-first sort of culture um, and panic culture a lot as well. And so there's, it, it seems, um, it seems like a luxury to sort of stop and be like, yeah, let's do some customer research. It sounds like fluffy. It's like brand development. It just sounds too soft, um, and not, um, like you're barreling ahead enough or you're not results driven enough when you're like, wait a minute, let's stop and talk to some customers. Um, the, the execs or, you know, the, not all, but I obviously can't throw blanket statements about all founders, but a lot of founders rightfully so are very results driven and fiercely so. And so the only thing they talk about with their marketer is I need results and like, show, show me the money. And I air quote, like, which is obviously a, a total blanket statement, but being results obsessed um, turns you into a conversion obsessed marketer, um, which sort of removes you from the experience, really. You start looking at these micro events that are super, super small in the grand scheme of things um, in terms of your, your opportunity and in terms of your customer's experience that, uh, yeah, it's just, it becomes hard to back away a bit and look at things a little bit more holistically and through the eyes of your customers when you are constantly being reminded that it's do or die. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> it's difficult to follow up on this because this is it. This is it, right? It's uh, a lot of focus on money, making money, a lot of focus on, on, on generating results, but long-term results. And I sense, sincerely believe in this generating long-term results will only come from focusing on people first, focusing on customers first, and you will then generate the results you need. You can't do it the other way around or else you're just going to shoot yourself in the foot in the long term. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like in practice? Uh, listeners love this type of, uh, uh, of step-by-step -step methodology in this podcast. They like to know how to actually do this practically speaking and let's go about it. So how do you advise people to be truly customer centric and, and where does it start in your opinion? Uh, I always start at the top, uh, in likely the most painful place to start. Um, but once a customer exists, it's really before you can, before you get customer centric, you have to know who you are, um, and really define your purpose, <laughs> your, 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 your raison d'être, like for the company, basically, why are, why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed every morning? Um, and who are you as a brand and who are you as a company and what do you stand for uh, is the first thing. And it sounds counterintuitive because obviously that's like very me, me, me or we, we, we focused and not focus on the customer at all. But in order to speak to your customers in any sort of way that will potentially resonate with them or that you can connect with them, you really need to know who the hell you are instead of trying to be everything to everybody and yada, yada. So I do, I will always start uh, by recommending some sort of brand development. I know for startups in particular, this is harder to do because again, 
results needed were needed yesterday. However, it is really, really valuable to sort of stop and take an inventory of who you are and who you want to be in, in your space. So that's the first order of business is figure that out. Get peel away the layers to the why you exist um, and what your true purpose is as a company and make it um, as inspiring as as possible. It will help to get everybody in the, in, on the team sort of amped up about what you're trying to do. It helps everybody get on the same page and really passionate. And I think it has to come from a place of passion or else it will fall flat once you try to turn it into marketing. Um, so I really love the Google Ventures three-hour brand sprint for this reason. It's not perfect, but it is a really good exercise to run through um, at least at a bare bones early stage thing. It's literally a three hour brand sprint where you get four to six people in a room and basically force them to think about really tough things, um, and make really hard decisions because you, you sort of have to get it down on paper and then, um, everybody sort of has to take stock in it and believe in it and be and be prepared to be like okay that's who we are next but it's really hard to do that it can be very hard so forcing everybody to agree can be difficult and forcing everybody to agree on something that is actually inspiring to everybody is hard too so it's hard work um but it doesn't have to be long uh and so once you've done that then the next step is obviously um, like after figuring out who you are as a, as a business. By the way, the, the, I will add the, the three hour, um, the Google Ventures three hour brand sprint. One of the exercises and my favorite in it covers the forces you to go through the Simon Sinek Golden Circle, which is basically defining the what, how, and why. Um, and that's probably the hardest part, but the rest is really great too. And and the rest of the exercises are sort of designed in a way to make sure that that one is actually resonates with okay. everybody. So let me stop um, you right there because I think okay. this is incredibly important and I'm glad you came back to this because I wanted to ask you more details about this first okay. step. So the golden circle of Simon Sinek consists of, as you said, the what, the how, and the why, but instead it's more like the why, the how, and the what, right? So start right. with why, your purpose, right. how right. you accomplish this purpose, and what do you do day to day to actually uh, do this, mm -hmm. right? So can we... But when, you, but when you build it for the first time, defining the what is easier than the why. So right. running through the actual exercise, I would start with the what and then the how, like how you do it better than everybody else. And then you can be like, okay, now I'm starting to get somewhere uh, and you can actually define the why. But you're right, start, you have to lead with why in, in terms of like uh, mindset after this, but as part of the exercise, it typically is easier to start with the what. So give me an example of this exercise. An example of it, like in practice. Mm -hmm. Let's like pick. A, like, let's challenge like a you. Everybody's going to say Apple with this. So let's let's pick something else and let's do it together briefly. Let's pick. Um... I've got one. Okay, do it. Wistia. Okay. They're a great example of a company that you know they and I don't know that they've. I don't know what framework they use and I don't know. But where what do they do? Just define who they are. Their sense of self. Oh, sorry, Wistia. Um, I'm going to butcher what they do, actually. Uh, but they're a they're a platform for they host and do analytics for video for marketers. They're in the they're a marketing tech company, um, but they have a very clear sense of self. They know exactly who they are, and they know they know their. And I'm, you know, going to throw out like stupid labels, but like you know, they know their voice and tone. They have a really strong. Um, personality and 
and just overall voice. And you can tell, you can tell it when they visit their, when you visit their website, you can tell when they, you just consuming even their, their support art, their, their help articles, um, you know, they know who they are and that it's, it's really obvious that their people give a shit about what they do. And, um, they all sort of share the vision and that's not, not every company does that very well. They, they're a great example. So what is their what? As you said, they do. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. That's, I, I don't actually know what their what, how, and why is. And that's not the point. The, the point is not for your customers to be able to know why you do what you do. It's a feeling. It's, it's, uh, and I, and I, I realize it's not quantifiable, but it is a feeling that I get when I, when I've, see any of Wistia's marketing collateral. I'm not a customer of theirs, by the way. Uh, so take that with a grain of salt. But um, I, I get the feeling that they, my, my, I jive with what they jive with, if that makes sense. Like I can connect to their brand. Um, I don't know why they do what they do. I don't know what their why is of their Simon Sinek necessarily. Um, but it's a feeling. It's not like I couldn't guess. I, I could. I could maybe try to venture a guess, but honestly. Well, let's go through another example then, so that we can really show what what it means. So the why starts with we believe X, Y, and Z. The how is we do that by doing X, Y, and Z, and the what is mm -hmm. we do X. So right. the uh, the example that is always used is is Apple. So Apple, mm -hmm. just to simplify, the what is we build computers. Yeah. The how is you have to Google this. I don't remember now. The how is um, we we do this by creating computers that are well designed or something around those yeah, lines, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and the beautiful, why, well designed, yeah, products. And the why is because we I think we believe in something like simplicity or uh, no, we we fight the status quo. We believe in yes, fighting the status quo. Or something think like think different. Yeah. 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 For the, for the, um, oh, I don't even, I don't remember that what that campaign was, but it was like for the believers or for the, the people who are basically fighting the status quo. Yeah. Uh, and that's, and that's obvious and it's, it's obvious with Apple, but they're, they're always the sort of the de facto example in this case, which, so I don't like going, I, I don't analyze Apple very closely in this regard because it's just boring. Um, but, Uh, th that's why I like examples like Wistia a little bit better. And to counter the Wistia one, by the way, the company that I would say, a, a good example of a company that doesn't do this is like Salesforce. <laughs> like right? when you say Salesforce. Well, because it's obvious too. It's, it's like almost too obvious that like, who the fuck are they anyway? Like, what are they, what do they do is even hard enough to answer, let alone how they do it or why they do it. It's just a like... So, I'm sorry for, for like the Salesforce fans out there, but it's a bit of a clusterfuck in terms of trying to figure out like what do they stand for and why do they do what they do? And I don't know, maybe it's just their their size, but size isn't an excuse because Apple. Yeah, they 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 used to have a very strong vision. Uh, they used to uh, their 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 founders used to have this uh, you know this um, war against um, software or something along those lines. Like usually, right. yeah, before that, before the software as a service world, there was basically you had to buy licenses and all of mm -hmm. that. And they enabled software over the internet and they fought against that, which was quite cool. But then, yeah, I think right. they lost their way. Uh, yeah. so, okay, so that's step one. Figure out your why, your, the golden circle exercise. What is step two? Mm -hmm. um, doing the same thing for your customers. 
Um, and I would say that, I mean, and, and this one, in terms of customer research, you've done, you've covered customer research with other guests and I don't need to go too far down that, that path, but customer research is obviously a very important part of this. So figuring out, um, you know, what you meeting your customers where they are basically in their struggles, in their, um, emotional state, uh, in, you know, the, how they're trying to be better, whatever, uh, what it is they're, they're trying to achieve, but to try to meet them where they are and doing customer research in order to get a good sense of that. Now there's levels of customer research. There's like the MVP version, like we just described with like the three hour brand sprint. Um, and so there's like, there's scrappy customer research that can be done. And then there's the right way, uh, which is obviously takes a lot more time. But if we're talking about a startup environment um, or a tech environment and this like results obsessed sort of environment, then it can be harder to do. So as a second stage, I would say some, a, a decent level of customer research enough that you can, can um, build a hypothesis uh, around what they're struggling with, why they're coming to you, what value that you can, what value you can provide. I would yeah. suggest though that even though, yeah, people have been talking about customer research in this podcast for a while because mm -hmm. it's one of the core principles of, of good marketing. Mm -hmm. Nobody has talked about your own method and your own way of doing stuff. So why don't you go through just a bit about this? How do you typically approach this phase? So the scrappy version of this, um, for, from, from my sort of perspective, and a lot of people will disagree with this, uh, Good. is surveys, which is a given, but not doing interviews. And that's what's not popular about it because interviews, I know, I know <laughs> are super important. I know are, you know, I, they are crucial and critical. And I'm not saying never get on the phone with your customers, obviously do, but when you are trying to move super quickly, get results yesterday, particularly if you're not a founder um, and you're trying to do some customer research without really getting that buy-in from the founder to do it, surveys can be an easy way to sort of set it up and continue working while, you know, the data comes in and you keep doing your job um, and keep learning and keep listening and then take the results and parse them in such a way that you can create a sort of hypothesis about what your customer's journey is. Okay. And, uh, so yeah. what kind of questions are you asking them in this survey? Well, there's two surveys that we would typically run through. And this is a process, by the way, that I only adopted in the last year. Prior to that, it was surveys and interviews. And, and I was working for a bigger company, obviously. So funding customer research is, was a little bit easier. But now working with younger companies... Uh, and trying to move more quickly, basically, the the it would be. I've learned a, a scrappier way of doing it. I learned a scrappier way of doing it through Momoko Price's ebook about value propositions, uh, which I'm sure has been talked about before. I have learned um, quite a bit about this process by working with Claire, obviously on this same sort of process and developing out training with her and workshops and and so forth. And I've put it into practice with multiple clients of mine, and I've seen great results great MVP results. This is not final product by any, I have to add that sort of disclaimer to all of this because I know it's, it breaks a lot of rules, but, um, a customer survey to, um, your highest value, most valuable, uh, customers and a web survey to sort of paint that the picture of 
the pre-purchase journey and the post-purchase sort of journey. Um, and so with those two surveys, you can sort of paint a picture again of that customer journey and create that first sort of that first best guess at what your customer's journey is. So what question do you ask in the customer survey? Right. Sorry. Uh, wow. Uh, I cannot remember exactly. But it, on, the, on the customer survey or on the web survey? Both. So the web survey is trying to uncover uh, level of awareness. So are people shopping? They don't know what, what your tool does. Um, or do they know exactly who you are? Do they use a, a tool uh, similar and they're looking for exactly the type of tool that you offer? Um, and that will determine what type of you know, messaging you need to sort of lead with on your website. Um, what are they looking for? Asking them for their, what, asking them for the one thing that they're looking for. I'm going from memory here because I can't remember off the top of my head exactly how these are framed, these questions. But um, that asking the what the one thing is that they're looking for in this type of solution will help you determine the hierarchy of messaging on your on your page a lot as well. Um, and then uh, I can't remember what the other questions are. I think it so, was, I think it's related to whether or not they're making a per, they're in purchase mode or not. So I can help you on this. So for the okay. web survey, one of the questions that I like to ask that are related to this is why are you on this page right now? What are you looking for? Mm-hmm. That's a good way to know there, as you said what they are actually looking for to do. If it's, I'm just looking around, if you have only, I'm just looking around, then it's it's not that good. If you have a lot of people that say, I'm looking to buy from you, then, then it's another subject. And then, have you ever heard of the brand on this website before today, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a great way to know whether you have to, as you said, uh, write a message that is, this is who we are, this is what we do, or more message that, okay, you know who we are, Let's go, right? So right. those are two stuff for the web survey. And then you talk about struggles and problems and, and stuff like this for the customer survey. Mm-hmm. So uh, one one question is, uh, what is your biggest problem right now? What are you suffering from the most in this field, right? Right. Any other uh, for the customer survey? On the customer survey side? Um, yeah, basically, like, what, what was going on in your world when you started looking for this type of tool? Um, and for for the customer survey, these remembering obviously that these are happy customers that you are serving well. So what was it that convinced you that we were the right tool for you? And um, further to that, like you can dig a little bit further into that as well and maybe potentially pull out like the benefits or potentially the uh, features that have meant the most to them or that they think is the most valuable to them, which can help you obviously um, prioritize uh, your onboarding. Do you, do you like to incentivize those those people to reply to the surveys? How do you typically deal no. with this? No, um, no, I don't. And you know why? Because I don't think it's needed. I, the web survey is harder uh, for obvious reasons. Obviously, the, people have a much less vested interest in responding to a web survey when they're just shopping. So it can take a while for the, the results to sort of build there, um, which is why I always encourage, like, get that set up as quickly as possible because it can take sometimes weeks to get some okay results from that. Um, the customer survey, I don't think it's necessary actually, because if you're talking to your highest value customers that are actually getting value from you, I think they have a vested interest in you being more successful. So, um, I, I have never seen a need. I've never worked with anybody who's needed to incentivize a customer survey, right? That type of customer survey, a, a best fit customer survey. So, the, qu- the first question you like to ask is actually related to, you said something like, what was going on in your world 
when yeah. you started looking for a solution like ours. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you basically try to paint the food customer journey from the first ever thought they had about your product or not your product. The first ever thought they had about solving the problem no that problem. you're solving mm -hmm. up until today, right? Mm -hmm. So how does it look like? So the first question is, would be this one. Then you ask about the, the problems that they were hoping to solve. Then you ask why have they purchased from, why have you purchased from us to understand the benefits? Mm -hmm. Are there other questions that you'd like to ask? Um, no, because I, I, I mean, I, I, I try to max it at five ish questions so that, um, each question people will d dive into a little bit more deeply. They'll be more obviously willing to fill a customer survey that is shorter. You don't want to take up too much time. Um, and all, honestly also to risk people not abandoning the survey process and to get as much as possible in the shortest amount of time as possible, keeping it as short as possible. So, um, again, MVP, this is five questions is not a, uh, an end all be all and uh, often will be the, impetus for running interviews, but in the absence of the interviews, these two surveys will put you in a decent position to put together a customer journey map. Um, I, I, there's a lot of other factors, obviously, that need to go into it, um, but you will be in a decent place to, to a, a decent place to start. And then your team, um, yourself as the marketer, your customer success, sales, product, uh, executive team are all also in a position to help build out that customer journey map and really from based on in on what they know about your customers and what they know about what you're delivering and when and and where they are and meeting them where they are um, you can build out that customer journey map and really start defining for each of the stages and or phases depending on how complicated it is uh, what people are thinking feeling and doing at each of those stages um and building it out in layers in in those types of layers so the defining stages and phases part is actually it feels straightforward for a lot of companies but it's actually not it it there's the like yeah yeah the awareness yeah the consideration and yeah the loyalty or growth or customer or whatever you call the whatever you call the typical last one but um, depending on how complicated the buying process is, or depending on how complicated the onboarding process is, that consideration phase might be might have multiple stages in it. Um, you know, there's the obvious, like okay, people on the website are in consideration mode, and people who are in our trial or onboarding, um, pe even people, uh, you know even people a month in, two months in, could still be in consideration mode. It very, in a, for a lot of tools, uh, not all, but some, and no, you won't actually know when that consideration phase ends unless you really know your customers and you, and you run the risk of sort of abandoning the fact that people are actually still evaluating you and you're like, Oh, we got their credit card. Okay, cool. Got them. Like <laughs> that has nothing to fucking do with anything. There's, they're still very much in evaluation mode. So all that to say that consideration phase could be multiple stages, as is the loyalty or growth or customer uh, phase at the end. That could be multiple as well. So, so the, the stages, as you mentioned, awareness, uh, acquisition, retention, uh, referral, revenue, and all of those uh, metrics that, that uh, stages that people use are based on your company, right? And they're yeah, not based not, on customers. Not, metric, not metrics, though. I don't attach metrics to those stages. Stages, right. They're not, yeah. they're not based. Things to me. 
They're not based on companies. They're uh, they're not based on your customer. They're based on yourself. So as soon as you start doing the exercise that you just mentioned, as soon as you start understanding what was the actual journey that people went through, you really realize that this is, this doesn't look like a five stage process. It's Mm -hmm. very likely to be much longer than this and you will Mm -hmm. be surprised by Mm -hmm. the results, right? So Mm -hmm. that's stage three. So how, how do we map this? How, how do we go about mapping this customer journey? It's funny. The, the first customer journey I ever mapped was a circle. Um, and that was like early days at, at Unbounce. Like the, my first ever one was the circle. I, I remember very well, Ryan Angley, the head of CS, myself, head of marketing and Carter, uh, one of the founders and head of product, we like locked ourselves in a room for, I don't even remember <laughs> a, a day at least, uh, and sort of mapped out this customer journey. Uh, ourselves. And we did it in the form of a circle since I've sort of abandoned the circle model, even though it makes a lot of sense. And I still think of it like a circle, um, but meaning um, your customers can do a lot to sort of feed acquisition and build awareness around your product as well. So uh, I think that, I think there's a pretty solid understanding around that, but essentially what I've ended up at is no two customer journeys will ever look the same. Depending on your resources, it could be, you could just build it in a spreadsheet or in a Google doc. It doesn't have to be complicated as long as you're taking your customers into account and the, the rest of your team and what they know about your customers and their experience with your customers into account. You're in a pretty good position to basically come up with a good naming convention for your phases and stages. And I, that may sound sort of gratuitous, but it is really, really important to have a Name, naming the phases of your customer journey is super important to the language that you use internally, but also making sure that it's tied to the goals associated with each of those stages um, and giving a reference point for everybody, even engineering and product and you know, everybody on your team to know, oh, okay, we're, we're focused on this phase right now or this stage right now or affecting change there. So the naming convention, and then again, like I said, the defining the the touch points and the what are what are people actually doing? Not only digital touch points, but what they're actually doing, um, how they're feeling, and um, what they're thinking. And so, with quotes must, and things like that. Okay, so let's go back to it. So, what are the let's picture together? Like, I'm picturing this huge blank piece of paper in front of me, right? Yep. So you draw this huge arrow from left to right. Uh, I actually do it more like a grid. Okay. Um, so it's with columns. Okay. And rows. So, <laughs> so like the columns, it's a spreadsheet. Are, the columns, the columns are the key are stages. The are the stages, exactly. Um, and there may be six or five or seven or whatever. And then the rows are the, um, the names of the stages. Okay. Across the top, a high level sort of description of what the stage, what it means that should be written in the, in the, in the first person of your customer. So like I am X, Y, Z at each of these stages. Um, I will, at the end of it, I'll put KPIs also at the top underneath those. So where the team should be focused, what, what, a, what a meaningful KPI is for that stage. I will know that the customer has achieved that when they hit this certain KPI. And then below that, I'll get into a little bit more of the nitty gritty, which is the doing, um, the thinking and the feeling. Actually, I do feeling first and then thinking. I don't okay. know why. So feeling, doing, thinking doing <laughs> feeling thinking okay so how is, do there you... a, is there like a big reason for that no not necessarily i just think it for for like hierarchy's sake for people that are trying to grasp 
your customer journey when when looking at it it is it is i put it in that frame just for them sure for other people so how do you how do you feel this badass grid <laughs> with your customer feedback that you receive from your surveys your two surveys and by talking to your team and again it's best guess um but i would do i do kp uh, the, the kpis and the metrics associated i do last Um, because really it's like, how do we dig into what's meaningful at each of those stages? And you really got to talk to people. You have to involve everybody. Um, the other reason, uh, by the way, the, the thing I'll add on, tack onto the side of this is the other reason that involving your team is so important and so valuable is that you need everybody to feel invested in this and you need everybody to believe in it. Because if you just go off and build this in a silo uh, and then bring it to the team and be like, here's our customer journey, everybody. That I, nobody, everybody's gonna be like, oh, cool. Like, so you had a fun like arts and crafts project over there, like good for you. That has nothing to do with me, but you really want to everybody to feel invested and to feel like, oh, there's where I come in. Oh, there's me. I see me in that customer journey. I see how I contribute to this customer journey, how my work contributes to the customer journey. So The, the super important sort of added benefit of, of, of involving other people, other than obviously learning from them, is getting them involved in the process so they get they invest themselves in it as well. All right. So talk me through the way you actually go through each survey and is able to like map out the, 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 key, the key stuff into, into this grid. Do you actually go through every answer one by one? Do you summarize them first mm. of all? How do you do it? Um, so... It, It's not always the most cut and dry process, but um, you can parse it in such a way that you can uncover jobs to be done. Um, again, this is like, I don't pretend to be an expert in jobs to be done at all, but if you can, if you can get a clear understanding of the job that your customers are hiring you to do, you can, you can sort of see the, their journey in that. So defining um, their struggle, um, their motivations and their desired outcomes, that's a customer journey, uh, right? Like that, that more or less, if you, again, just to use it as sort of a lens and lay it against that customer journey, they pair up quite nicely, jobs to be done and a customer journey. So I think they're very complementary, and I always use them together. Um, they're not, um, they're just a different way of looking at the same thing at the end of the day. And so that, that customer survey can help you, um, sort of define the customer journey, but what you will quickly realize once parsing the data is that there are multiple jobs and you do not do the same thing for every customer. You may, you may, You may discover that people are in really different places when they come to you. Uh, how you actually take that customer data and turn them into customer jobs and then customer journeys is work. It's not, and it's not easy work, and it's easy to fuck up. Um, it's easy to to follow a path because you're like, oh, here's this very here's this formula I'm trying to follow, and I have to abide by this formula or this framework of jobs to be done or customer journey, and then you could actually, you know. Um, lose sight of meaning, uh, the, the true meaning that, that is, that needs to be gleaned, uh, from the customer feedback that you receive. So it's not a perfect and it can be messy and you may need to go back and, uh, you know, check your assumptions. Um, but what you can do is get some, maybe two or three sort of highest value um, jobs to be done, defined, customer jobs defined, and then you can build a customer journey to match that. 
you may need a different customer journey per job. Um, in a lot of cases, you do because different customer jobs typically need different onboarding. Right. And, they may, and it may need such unique onboarding that they need different customer journey maps. So give me a brief example of a customer, like a job uh, from a customer perspective. Okay. Um, With Wistia again, let's just take the example of Wistia. So why, what are people, marketers in particular, in particular hiring Wistia for? They might be hiring oh, Wistia. Man, you know what? I'm too afraid to, I'm too afraid to like bastardize Wistia, to be it's honest okay, with you. It's okay, we will. We will Can bastardize we pick another it. one? <laughs> I have, okay. Well, I have I have a simple example. I, I work with a client right now who's B two C financial tool, personal finance tool, and they have some customers that go to them to get out of debt. They have some customers that go to them because they are um, uh, like do it yourselfers in terms of like they really like to know everything about what's going on. There's a term for these people and I can't remember the name of it, but it's like, it's these people who basically like micromanage everything in their life. They're fiercely in charge about uh, of everything in their life, highly efficient people. And so they like to use spreadsheets, which happens to be tied directly to this product. Um, and then there's a third job, let's say, which is um, people who are frustrated, competitive uh, so, so like, let's say mint customers okay. or mint users. So frustrated competitive users. Um, yeah. So the, they may need, um, they, they obviously need very different messaging, right? A, a getting out of debtor needs, they may not be the most prolific spreadsheet user in the world. So they may need time to get up to speed with like, how is a spreadsheet actually going to do this for me? Um, they may need, on top of that, they may need um, education about getting out of debt itself, right? So the, the 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 product education and the problem solving education is a component for them. On the other hand, so the onboarding would be very different versus somebody who I understands how the tool works. They're very tech savvy. They're very um, they're control freaks, and they know exactly what they want. Um, and so then they're like, I don't need to know how to get out of debt. I just want like, give me the TLDR and how to use your tool and then get the hell out of my way. And then there's the third one, which is I'm really used to having my hand held by mint. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm used to like very, uh, like a lot of restrictions and now this is blown wide open for me. So I need a bit of help on how to use your actual tool. So you can see how those three different jobs require very different, um, not only marketing experiences and sort of nurturing experiences, but also onboarding. And this is it, right? And it's obvious when you talk about it this way, right? So when I'm looking to get to go out of debt and use this product, and when I'm looking to like manage my finances better, you can already picture that those two people will need completely different experiences. But yet, totally. most of the time, what we do, and a lot of companies are guilty of that, is we just try to provide a blanket type of experience that will work for mm -hmm. anyone and therefore works for no one. Mm -hmm. So I assume that step four, once you've built those different journeys, and maybe you need to start with a very simple approach that selects the most important job, the one that has, you know, the, the highest ratio of customer or potential customer uh, to have this job. Let's say they want to get out of debt. 80% of people are in this category. Well, right. you, you might want to map this journey first, right? And mm -hmm. then what is step four? So once you have this kind of first version of the map, uh, it's not going to be perfect, but at least people have 
pitch in into it and help you build it. What do you do with it? Well, are we ta we're talking about just one customer job for the moment, one customer's journey? Yeah. Because if we're focused on only one, then what I would do next is defining meaningful KPIs. So I mentioned this before, but it's really important not to gloss over it. What are the what are the metrics that are affected? What what are the actual things that you're looking for that are indicative of somebody having success at a given stage? So that might not be they gave you their credit card, um, and in a, a lot of ways it's it's not. So it's not like you know a payment source added is not a KPI of somebody seeing value in your tool, for example. Um, but a lot of people use it that way, and they're like, okay, marketing's focus is payment source added or credit card added or trial started or whatever when um, that is only transactional and has nothing to do with um, the customer's experience. It has more to do with the mechanics of how your company operates and way less to do with that. So I would go, I would then define meaningful KPIs for each of the stages. And then the fifth stage um, is what of a job does your current uh, onboarding, does your current marketing, does your current uh, customers' experience do of, of affecting that KPI that you've defined, that very meaningful KPI that you've defined, um, and sort of taking inventory of where you're at and where the biggest opportunities are that you're missing, because at that stage, it becomes really obvious what you're not doing. Uh, the, the lowest hanging fruit or biggest opportunities are like punch you in the face. And what needs improving also it becomes really, really obvious too, particularly if you're looking at just that one customer job or right. that one customer's journey. So give me an example of a, of a meaningful KPIs. Um, well, my favorite one that I always use is like uh, paid us twice and um, has been using our tool for at least three months, for example. That yes. being when you can finally consider somebody out of the evaluation stage. So this is behavioral meaning that this is based yes. on what people have done in the past not what people are maybe doing or anything like this so this is rooted in action and i think this is one of the criteria for meaningful kpi it's rooted mm -hmm. in customer behavior because we've yeah. repeated that many times over in this podcast people are very bad at predicting what they want to do or what they will do and the only thing you can really judge uh and, and base things on is what people have done uh, so this is, for example, for a customer to define an active customer, yeah, uh, pay twice, use the product more than 20 times for a subscriber right. uh, that could be subscribed, confirm the email and received and opened more than five emails. You can, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. where we're going with this. So yeah, exactly. It's right. A, it's an important process. Defining that, pro defining those KPIs is not a small job at all. Like it, it's, it can actually take, um, it can take quite a bit of time to get it right. And also considering the fact that you are going to be moving forward with this and hopefully keeping this customer journey, at least the, the, the core pieces that we're talking about right now for a long time, you want to make sure that you get this right. So, and again, the buy-in is really important. Um, another thing that defining these KPIs is really beneficial for is for defining where does one person's job end and another's begin, um, which can be really important for sales and for CS and marketing, particularly those three. But we're talking about customer experience here, not product experience, obviously. So um, it's those three teams or people um, that are the most affected by those things. So particularly CS and marketing, defining, deciding where 
um, marketing ends and customer success begins is a really important decision and so, so important to the people like the individuals, just at the individual level from like, how is my performance being measured? Am I doing a good job? Um, you know, what, what are my targets for this quarter? Just that shit that what these marketers are responsible for should be rooted in actual meaning attached to these customer journeys, which have been rooted in your customer's experience. So setting, setting performance targets for your team that aren't rooted with the customer experience is a big mistake. Right. Well, uh, Jia, thanks for, for going through this step-by-step step, uh, with me. I know it's not easy to go into that level of details, but you, you, yeah. you did great. So let's switch gear a bit and okay. move on to more personal stuff, which is even more difficult to answer. Oh, um, great. <laughs> I'm curious, you, you, we mentioned you work with Unbounce for quite a few years. Uh, you have a lot of experience in marketing and you work with a lot of clients. Um, I'm curious, what is what has been your biggest marketing fuck-up to date? Oh, God. Um, big market is marketing. Uh, wow. That's a great question. What one comes to mind that always comes to mind. Um, when I, when I think about like fuck ups that actually affected the bottom line of like <laughs> revenue, um, was a pricing page test and Ollie Gardner will remember this one well, but it was a pricing page test we were running on the Unbounce website where we can't remember where we were testing up top, but basically we pushed free below the, below the fold. Okay. without realizing that we pushed it below the fold. And it took us two weeks to realize what the hell we had done and what the, what that actually meant to the business. So um, just to describe, you had the pricing page, but above like what you can see on the screen, that's you right. only had paid plans. Yeah. And then right. below that, you had to scroll to see the free plan. So you basically, yeah. what happened was people... We stopped getting uh, free free signups. There was a lot of learnings that came out of this, obviously, but free signups dropped and um, upgrades from free to paid, obviously, were affected. Um, it became more obvious then. This was like an early day fuck up. I, you know, this was uh, years ago. Um, but it, we we started prioritizing our free users after that. Um, a lot more. Um, and I, I shouldn't say prioritizing because it's not that they, like they weren't important, but we started optimizing their experience a little bit more and, and taking, taking, um, that opportunity more than we, we had before. It was really just, it was a simple test we were running on the pricing page. It really wasn't like a big deal, but, um, a couple weeks in the big, the biggest fuck up was not that it happened. I don't care that that happened. That was great. We learned a lot. The biggest fuck up was that I didn't know it took two weeks to figure it out. Um, it would have been a great test had I accounted for it, but it was, I had no explanation until I realized, oh, wow, that must be what, what happened. And did you get in trouble? No, God, no, not at all. But, um, it, it was, I, I never got, I, I don't typically get in trouble when I, when I have a job, when I have a boss, I don't typically get in trouble because I beat myself up about fuck ups way more than enough. So nobody else needs to beat me up on them because I, take, um, I take my work like to maybe an, an ultra high, um, uh, like level of accountability, maybe. I'm curious then while we are in the transparency side of things, have you used any sleazy, shady, aggressive marketing tactics in your career? Entire career, I think mm -hmm. maybe, and this would be laughable maybe to a lot of people, but the, the thing that made me feel the 
like dirtiest as a marker marketer was SEO. Um, and not the good kind of SEO, obviously, but the bad kind, the kind where you're like putting footer navs together and you're like naming your links and your footer, just the right keyword. I'm like, what the, what am I doing with my life? Like, when was that? Oh God, years ago, like over 10 years ago. I have never, I have done that since I, because I, in the moment I was like, what am I doing? This is, this just feels like this has nothing to do with the customer's experience. This has nothing to do with, um, you know, being helpful or providing value or like, you know, if you can do both, that's what you should aim for. Like be SEO friendly and user friendly. But I, I, I always default to being user friendly over SEO friendly, but that was maybe like the, what I didn't like. Um, the other thing that I, that I probably did, and this is, again, this is way pre, um, unbalanced. This is back when I was, I was running an e-commerce website. I became very conversion obsessed. Um, it's easy to do in e-commerce, obviously. Well, it's easy to do always, but it's particularly easy to do in e-commerce, I find. But, um, and I became obsessed with very, 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 very small details for too long. Luckily, I am also the type of person who's hyper brand sensitive. So I didn't, I never like messed up in terms of, uh, the, the company just, I disappointed myself in not thinking holistically enough for like a period of time. It was a learning. Right. It was, yeah. And uh, since it's the podcast, uh, since you're listening to this podcast from your house or like walking, uh, walking, uh, going to work or cooking or whatever, you haven't seen uh, Gia's face uh, when she was talking about SEO and uh, and all of that. Like she really did this disgusted face. Um, she I really love hates SEO. It. I I know I love SEO. I started in SEO. That's what got me. That's what got me excited about actually about marketing. That was where I dove in first. I just I guess that was where I first felt the like yucky the the dark side of it. Yeah, the dark side. What do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next ten years, twenty years, or fifty years? I mean, there's the, there's the obvious stuff like market, like you want to be marketed to and provide value and yada, yada. But what I think doesn't get nearly enough attention is again, the, the relationship between marketing and other teams, um, marketing and customer success, marketing and sales, marketing and product, marketing and engineering, marketing and the executive team, particularly at tech companies, it's not a given that the marketer, even the most senior one, or in many cases, the only one has a seat at the table. Um, and it's, you know, getting, being taken seriously as a, maybe a non-technical person at a tech company is, um, has challenges associated with it and building inroads with the executive team and the engineering team, all the departments for that matter, can go a long way to being more being a more effective marketer. And so, um, that inter marketing is very interdisciplinary. You can't operate without these other departments, but I would say further to that building relationships and inroads and, um, uh, learning to advocate for marketing internally, being a champion for other departments and what, and their needs and how marketing can help CS and how marketing can help sales and vice versa and product and engineering. Um, advocating for marketing internally is not an easy task, particularly at a tech company. And that's what I would, that that's where I, I, that's one of my favorite topics, uh, particularly because I'm extra sensitive to the, the tech side of things and marketing, maybe not getting, 
everybody hates marketers, right? I mean, <laughs> it's, that's not, you know, you, you didn't name that for that for a reason, but at tech companies, it's a little bit different in that it's, it's all about product first, typically. So, um, yeah, just being being an advocate for that for marketing and and representing marketing well and being helpful and being a team player and speaking for how marketing uh, drives business value doesn't always come naturally to every to everybody, particular people who are like earlier in their career. And so, learning those skills is really really important to being an effective marketer at a company. What are the top three resources you would recommend our listeners to check out? Uh, well, I mean, considering the topic I was just talking about and considering that I'm also a marketer, um, I would be remiss not to mention forget the funnel, obviously. Um, so forget the funnel I know was mentioned earlier, but basically we, what we do is we run free weekly workshops for SaaS marketers, um, focused a lot on this type of like customer centric type marketing, but also that advocating for marketing piece that getting out of the weeds piece, thinking more strategically part of the job that I don't think gets talked about nearly enough. Um, so definitely the forget the funnel workshops I would recommend. Uh, we are also next month, um, in March, we're launching a more guided training version of this. So it's a much more, I think guided, like a much more handheld sort of process of going from, mindset all the way to, to, uh, custom, going through customer research, brand development, the entire process, customer journey development, a lot of the stuff that we talked about today. Um, but in a, in a more guided sort of 12 week program. So we are going to be doing a training. Um, and then other than that in the SaaS space, particularly, I really love the, um, think tank Slack community which is a big, it's a big one. I think the biggest, I don't know, but it's one of the biggest communities of marketers. I would highly recommend that. Nicole Elizabeth Demaray uh, runs it and um, everybody is really helpful and giving. And they're like, there's a channel that is all about like, I need help this week. And you can go in there and ask anything and you will have undoubtedly people like raise their hand to help you, which is amazing. There's a lot of uh, really cool channels in that, in that uh, Slack community. And then also uh, she just launched a newsletter. There's only been one, it's brand new, but because it's Nicole, I have no doubt it is going to be jam packed of like SAS goodness is called Sunday brunch. She just launched a, a newsletter that I think if you go to her website, you can sign up. So yeah, it's Nicole Elizabeth Demaray. Um... That's right. We'll, we'll add that in the show notes of the episode, mm -hmm. obviously, as usual, but uh, just Google it as, as you have heard me uh, saying this name or, 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 or Gia saying, uh, telling her name and you'll, you'll find it somewhere. Um, yes. Yeah, she, she's great. And, and you, Forget the Funnel uh, is, is a great, great show. I love the name as well. It's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and I actually been on it recently. So mm -hmm. I'll send you, uh, I'll put that in the, in the show notes as well um, as a link because yeah. that was quite fun. Um, so Gia, you've been an absolute pleasure uh, to talk to, learned a lot from you. Uh, where can people connect with you? Uh, Twitter is probably the best place. Um, my Twitter handle back at my poor decision-making skills back in <laughs> 2000, late 2008, GGIIAA is my Twitter handle. Don't ask. And I could have gotten my first name. Don't even get me started on not taking my first name at the time it was available. So Twitter and then my company is abettercx.com. 
Right. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing i like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on itunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.